Well, good morning. That was fun with those kids, wasn't it? James, Hannah, boy, that was. Uh, I thought she'd give me a little more there. <laughs> did you did you instruct her before she came to church? Okay, good, good. Well, it's good to see all of you here today. Happy Father's Day again. You know, this is uh, this is my first Father's Day, so I'm uh, I'm I'm becoming accustomed to this. You know, it's pretty nice. Uh, uh, again, not having to change the diapers, although you know Casey might add that I probably don't change as many as I should. Um, but nevertheless, happy Father's Day to all the fathers. You know, I heard a story uh, about a young man who wanted to date this gal, and so he he walked up to her and he says, uh, "You know, hi, I'd, I'd like to take you out for dinner." And she said, "Well, you know, before you can." Take me out on a date. First, you got to come to my house, and you got to meet my dad. And so the boy thought about it, and you know he he kind of thought, well, you know she's really beautiful, and, and she's she's you know, she's really nice, and I really like her, and, and so you know what? Okay, I can do that. So he agreed. Now, before coming to the house later on in the week, the boy decided that he would uh, pick up a gift for this gal. And so he goes into the drugstore and he starts looking around. He sees uh, some some chocolates, and he thinks to and he thinks, well, she might like some of those chocolates. So he, he grabs one, but then he sees a, a bigger box of chocolates, and he starts thinking about it. And he uh, he grabs the bigger box of chocolates as well. So he takes a small box of chocolates and a big box of chocolates, and he walks up to the clerk at the drugstore and he puts it on the counter. The drugstore owner can't help but notice that he's, he's buying two different size boxes of chocolates. He says, son, what are you doing there? And the son says, well, I'm, I'm going over to meet a girl tonight. And uh, I've decided that if, if she holds my hand at the end of the date, I'm going to give her a small box of chocolates. And I've decided if, if she gives me a kiss on the cheek after the date, well, well then she's going to get the large box of chocolates. Drugstore owner says, okay, that sounds good. So he checks him out, gives him his chocolates, and the boy goes on his way. Later on that night, he comes to the family home, walks in the door, meets the family. They sit down before the dinner table, and the father asks this young man to pray. And oh boy, did this man pray. This young man prayed the greatest prayer you've ever heard. He prayed and prayed and prayed and said amen, and they had their food. Afterwards, his date, while they were alone, asked him, you know, I didn't know you were such a spiritual boy. I had no idea you could pray like that. And the young man said, I had no idea your dad was the drugstore owner. (laughs) You know, why are we afraid of dads sometimes? Why are we afraid of the big dad? Because dad is the disciplinarian. Dad is the one to be feared. He is the one in the family that we point to and we say, we need his approval if we're gonna live a right life. If we're gonna be, if we're gonna be accepted in our family, we need dad's approval. We need dad's approval. Friends, when we consider our dads, when we consider what they mean to us in our lives, uh, we think of dad as someone who corrects us, someone who sharpens us, someone who disciplines us for our own good. 
Dad is known as a disciplinarian. And we respect him and we seek his correction that we might live good lives. Friends, today we're going to pick up a new text in our Bibles today. We're going to pause in our series in 1 Peter. We're going to finish that next week. But today we're going to open up to the book of Hebrews. And in the book of Hebrews chapter 12, we're going to be reading a story or reading a a message today, a scripture today about discipline. The author of Hebrews is going to be urging his audience to readily accept the discipline of God. Readily accept the discipline of God, just like we accept the discipline of our earthly fathers. And so the title of my message today is this, Don't Despise Discipline. Don't Despise Discipline. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to begin in verse 5. We're picking up mid-verse here in verse 5, but we're continuing the thought of the author. And so in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5, the middle of the verse, he quotes an Old Testament passage, and then he's going to elaborate on that passage. This is what it says, Hebrews 12, 5 to 11. He says, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by Him. For whom the Lord loves... He chastens, and He scourges every son whom He receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all of you have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they, that is our human fathers, indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them. But He, that is the Father of spirits, did it for our profit, that we might be partakers of His holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Heavenly Father, O Lord, we ask here now that You would open up our eyes, that Your Spirit would especially guide us as we seek Your Word, as we look into it, as we pull from it Your truth. Father, may may it be clear to us And may this truth transform our lives, Father. May it help us to readily accept Your discipline. And may it remind us of the discipline that we also need to exercise upon our own children. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. Take a look at verse 5 again. He says this, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by Him, For whom the Lord loves, He chastens and scourges every son whom He receives. Now friends, this is a quotation from the book of Proverbs, chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. This quote includes two commands and a very good reason to pay attention to those two commands. The two commands are these. They're listed in yellow there. You'll you'll notice them at the top of verse 5. On the one hand, it says, don't despise. Do not despise the chastening of of the Lord. And the second command, nor be discouraged 
nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by Him. Now, what is this chastening? What is this rebuking? Chastening is a word that means discipline. It means training. It means instruction. The word rebuke there means to show your fault, to be convicted, to be proven guilty. In the context of this passage here that we're going to be reading today, the word chasten there in particular has to do with some sort of physical kind of discipline. Some sort of, of, of not, just, not just good teaching so that the person will be disciplined, but some kind of consequence so that the person will be disciplined and will be made mature and complete. Some kind of a form of discipline. Not just good training. The word despise there. It says, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. That means think lightly of it. That means to think it is frivolous. To consider it inconsequential or with an attitude of nonchalance. To look at it and say, ah, no big deal. Do not despise the chastening of the Lord. Don't think it's a frivolous thing. Neither loathe it or hate it. He says, neither be discouraged when you are rebuked by Him. That is to say, don't faint, don't grow weary, don't lose heart, don't throw a pity party when you're disciplined by the Lord. Now, right off the bat, I don't know about you, but I I was asking the question in my mind as I was reading verses 5 and 6, I was thinking to myself, what is the Lord's discipline? What does God's discipline look like? What does it look like? I want to zero in on that question. I think that's a question that oftentimes... I think we just kind of throw out there that, you know, yeah, God disciplines people, but we don't really know what it looks like, and and we, we really can't put any tangible things on that, so let's just leave it aside. You know, for just a moment, I want to explore with you some of the ways in which God disciplines people. And in particular, I want to focus here today on how He disciplines Christians. How does God discipline Christians? I think this comes in two ways. First, there's individual consequences. There's individual forms of discipline. And one of the things, and I'm just throwing out there some of the, there are many, but some of the things that I've noticed from Scripture that showcase what God's discipline looks like are these. First, a lack of intimacy with God. A lack of intimacy with God. When you and I sin, when you and I do wrong, when you and I stray from the Lord, one of the ways God disciplines you and I is our fellowship with Him weakens. Our fellowship with Him weakens. We lose intimacy with the Lord. We fall out of fellowship for a time. Does that mean we're going to hell? No. Those who are Christians are saved by faith in Jesus Christ. Period. You can't lose your salvation just because you sin after becoming a Christian. But there are consequences when you sin after becoming a Christian. And one of those is losing intimacy with the Lord. Second, how about ineffective prayer? You know, you read some of the verses I've listed there. Uh, you'll, you'll easily see here that, that prayers are hindered when we sin. In fact, I, I could add a verse up there. First Peter chapter 3 speaks of husbands who, if they don't treat their wives well, their prayers are hindered, it says in First Peter 3. So friends, when we sin, 
when we do wrong, one of the ways in which we are disciplined by God is that our prayers become ineffective. Our requests fall on deaf ears. The desires of our heart, as we ask God to provide and to supply us what we need, when we are persisting in sin and yet asking Him to bless us, the Lord doesn't pay much attention to the prayers of those who are persistent in sin. Three, a third way of discipline is this, sickness or death due to sin. Now you might think, wow, that's pretty harsh. Now again, I'm not speaking of eternal death. I'm speaking of physical death. And I'm bringing out what the Bible says. If you read the passages behind me, you'll, you'll notice very clearly that those who persist in habitual sin may very well fall into some form of sickness or ultimately physical death. Does that mean that when I get a cold or when I get cancer or when I get some terminal illness, I'm automatically in sin? No. I want to say that very clearly. That is not the case. It is not the case that just because we experience some sort of sickness or illness or disease that we should automatically assume that we're in sin. However, what it should do is it should remind us that we should always be inspecting our lives, considering whether or not we are in fact fact abiding in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the Bible does say that sickness and death does come as a consequence occasionally for those who are in sin. And we need to be mindful of this. We need to teach the whole counsel of God. I'm not going to shy away from saying that sickness and death at times are caused by human sin. How about corporately? What about on a corporate level in a group setting? What about the church? How is discipline, how is God's discipline exercised in the church? In accordance with Matthew 18, the church is called to remove those who refuse to acknowledge and repent of their sin. That's another form of discipline. You know, some who, uh, and I've personally, I've personally never seen this happen in a church. I know of others who have had this happen in a church. I've personally never been uh, witness to this in a church. But in some cases, according to Matthew 18, and, and Paul speaks of this too, if someone in the church is in sin, and they are persisting in it, and they are refusing to acknowledge it, and they're refusing to repent of it, there are biblical steps to be taken. First, to go up to them privately, then to take someone with you, then to bring it before the entire church. And if it gets to that third level, if you will, then that person is asked to move, move on from the fellowship. They're not kicked out the door, but they're graciously loved out the door. We're saying, look, we want you to turn from your ways. And if you're not going to turn from your ways, then we need to ask you, not to become, not, not to continue on as a member of this church. Because this church is about pursuing the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's another form of discipline. The church exercises discipline on behalf of the Lord. And secondly, and this is just more of a general principle that I see, and we could list a number of scriptures here, but churches who persist in sin incur disorder, disunity, apathy, and a lack of love between the membership. I think it's very often the case that when a group is in sin, when a church is in sin, when there's gossip, when there's backbiting, when there's stabbing in the back, churches fall into chaos. They lose unity, they lose love, and ultimately, they break apart. They lose their effectiveness 
under the headship of the Lord Jesus Christ whom they've turned away from. Friends, these are just some. These are just some of the ways in which God disciplines us. And we need to be mindful of this form of discipline. We need to readily recognize, wow, I think I'm being disciplined by the Lord here. And we need to turn from it when we are disciplined. So returning to verse 5, these, these two commands that we've seen here. Two commands. He says, don't despise the discipline of the Lord, the chastening of the Lord, and don't be discouraged by it, by it either. In other words, when God disciplines you, take it seriously and don't throw a pity party. Take it seriously and don't throw a pity party. Don't shrug off God's discipline. Why should we take it seriously? Why should we not lose heart when we incur His correction? Look at verse 6. He says, For whom the Lord loves, He chastens and scourges every son whom He receives. Why should we take God's discipline seriously? Because God loves you. You are disciplined because God loves you. You are corrected because God has received you into His family by your faith in Jesus Christ. He's received you as a son or a daughter. And like a human father, He also corrects us when we do wrong. Look at verse 7. He says, If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all of you have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Friends, if you endure chastening, God is, in effect, reminding you that you are a part of His family. You know, parents discipline their children. Parents discipline their children because they love them and they dearly care that their kids stay on the straight and narrow path. They dearly want their kids to know right from wrong, good from evil. And so they discipline them. Fathers discipline their children because they know it will ultimately save their child from a lifetime of sorrow. You know, there's a, a probably a well-known proverb to some of you that I want to share with you from Proverbs 23. Take a look at what it says from Solomon here. Proverbs 23. He says, Apply your heart to instruction and your ears to words of knowledge. Do not withhold correction from a child. For if you beat him with a rod, he will not die. You shall beat him with a rod and deliver his soul from hell. Now some of you are laughing because you're going, wow, that sounds kind of harsh, doesn't it? Beat him with a rod? Neil, couldn't you have found a better Bible translation today, you know? A little, uh, you know, a little message or a New Living Translation, you know, something like that. It just kind of softens it up a little bit. Beat him with a rod? You know, friends, I don't, I don't soften up this passage because the word uh, for beat there uh, means what it says. It means what it says. The word beat in Hebrew means beat. It means strike. <laughs> you know, I was listening to a radio show uh, not too long ago, maybe... Three or four weeks ago, Casey and I were driving in the car and I was listening to this radio show and there was a uh, California um, legislator on with it, this talk show host. And uh, this California legislator is currently putting before the state of California a bill that bans 
uh, spanking for children who are four years and younger. It would make it illegal in the state of California to spank a child who is four years or younger. This bill, if it is passed, this misdemeanor crime would be punishable by up to one year in jail and a $1,000 fine. I've asked the elders for a raise. And... (laughs) Friends, this political idea flies directly in the face of biblical teaching. I can't say it any other way. This political idea put forth by a California legislator about a month or two ago flies directly in the face of biblical teaching about child rearing. Physical discipline is part and parcel of raising a son or daughter in the training and admonition of the Lord. Is physical discipline the only way to discipline? Of course not. Of course not. But is it biblically based? Is it a viable means of raising your child to be a mature and godly person? You bet it is. You know, my son, uh, he's nine months old. And he, I will say very clearly, is well aware of what is right and what is wrong. He has come to learn in the last month that the curtains in our family room are off limits. The curtains in our family room are off limits. He is not to touch the curtains. Yet of all the places in the family family room that my little boy Bennett wants to go to when we drop him in that family room, where do you think he goes first? The curtains! That's right. Now, a month ago, he started pulling on these curtains. And uh, these curtains have fallen before because of uh, another family child who pulled them down. So a month ago, he starts pulling on these curtains. And so being the, being the good pastor that I am, I, I pulled them aside and I convened a family meeting. And... <laughs> Casey and I, we sat Bennett down at the dinner table and we we opened up the Bible and we explained to him some of the ways in which he was disobeying. And uh, we had a little time of Q&A and we we really, we understood, we had a mutual understanding of where we were at. We understood uh, what the Lord wanted and what the consequences would be. And so we... Uh, merrily retreated from that, that family meeting. We went back into the family room to enjoy the evening. And I set my son down and he made a mad dash for the curtains. <laughs> Started pulling on him again. I'm pleased to report, however, that our son's fascination with the curtains has diminished greatly since that day. It hasn't diminished because he's lost interest. It hasn't diminished because we've threatened to withhold privileges from him. Like Gerber banana food breakfast. No, Bennett's fascination with the curtains has been curtailed because he knows that he gets a little pop on the hand when he touches his curtains. The lightest pop on the hand to my son Bennett, and he knows instinctively that he shouldn't be doing what he does. He gets this look on his face and it breaks your heart. But nevertheless, we do this because we know it's for the best. And I tell you today, I tell you very clearly, it's been a month since we've, uh, since we've had him dealing with the curtains. I tell you today, he walks up to the curtains and he'll stop and turn around and he'll grin. <laughs> he'll grin. 
He knows instinctively that we don't want him to touch that. And now he's starting to show some respect. He's starting to show that he recognizes that that these are off limits. Now, friends, I know some of you are thinking, you know what, he's too young. Oh, he's just a baby. You know, oh no, I've got all these child psychology books which tell me that he shouldn't know right and wrong until he's seven. I mean, I, and I, listen, I, I, don't mean to be, I don't mean to belittle the, the psychologists who, who study children. They do great work. But I'm here to tell you very clearly that my son knows right from wrong. He knows that the curtains are off limits. And he knows that the lightest pop on the hand deters him from doing what we think is not the best for him. And it's, it's a small way. We're not hurting him. It's a small way of reminding him that he needs to do what is right in the eyes of his parents. He needs to be trained up to do what is right in the eyes of his parents. Parents discipline their children because they love them and they dearly care for them and they don't want curtains to fall on them. This is why we do it. This is why we begin at an early age. Something small, like a little pat on the hand. Friends, Solomon says, apply your heart to instruction your ears to words of knowledge. Don't withhold correction from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he's not going to die. If you strike him with a rod, you're going to be delivering his soul from hell. That is to say, you may very well be preserving your son or daughter from a terrible, terrible eternal fate. Back to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12. As we end up, uh, verse 8 says this, But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and you're not sons. Now friends, don't take this statement farther than it needs to be taken. Uh, the Scripture is not suggesting that all God's children must be presently enduring some form of discipline. Instead, the author is merely drawing out the simple teaching that God's children are to experience correction. And thus, they can be rightly called God's children. For God, like our earthly fathers, disciplines His children. Take a look at verse 9. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more be readily, more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? Now that phrase, we've had human fathers who corrected us, and and we paid them respect. I want to pause there just briefly, um, and emphasize the proverbial nature of that statement. The author of Hebrews is not suggesting that A, all fathers, throughout time have, have disciplined their sons, and B, all sons and daughters always show respect to their fathers. No, he's making a general statement of truth. He's saying, generally speaking, fathers discipline, and generally speaking, sons and daughters show them respect for that. I recognize, I fully recognize that some of you out there today cannot resonate with this statement. Some of you, um, Some of you have fathers who corrected you when you were a child, but others of you... Uh, had fathers who either didn't correct you as a child or they excessively corrected you as a child. And I want to be, uh, be sensitive to that. I, I think that some, for some of us, we look at the start of verse 9 and we say, I, hey, I can't resonate with that. My father either didn't discipline me or, or he was severe and he was harsh and I didn't respect him. Um, surely there are some of us in this audience who could... Uh, who have those experiences. And I want to recognize that. But perhaps um, you can 
recognize the general principle that the author is saying here. He's saying, generally speaking, fathers are to correct their children. And children are to show their fathers respect for doing so. And so as we read this general truth, we need to recognize it for what it, for what it is. It is a general truth about life. And how much more so, if that is what our earthly fathers have done, if, if they've corrected us and we've shown them respect for what they've done, for what, what they've done on this earth to, to discipline us, how much more should we accept, embrace the discipline of our Heavenly Father, the Father of spirits, and live? How much more so should we identify His discipline, embrace it, let it sink into our soul so that we might be changed and might be corrected and matured from it? You know, I know instinctively when my dad disciplined me as a child. It didn't take rocket scientists. It didn't take a rocket scientist to figure it out. When my dad would swap me, I knew he was disciplining me. I have a feeling, though, friends, that when our Heavenly Father disciplines us, oftentimes you and I are not paying attention. It's not a swat on the butt. It comes in different forms. Lack of intimacy, sickness, death, ineffectual prayer. Maybe a church that's in disorder or disarray. Lack of love, disunity. I fear that oftentimes when we're incurring God's discipline, we don't even know that it is happening. And so the author here is reminding us, hey, you've got to be in subjection to that discipline. You've got to be in subjection to that discipline. You've got to recognize it when it comes, accept it, embrace it. How much more should we readily embrace this pattern of life as we prepare for the kingdom of God our earthly fathers, they discipline us that we might avoid the calamities of life. But our Heavenly Father watches over our eternal well-being. He disciplines us so that we might become more like Jesus Christ and incur Jesus' approval and favor in the life to come. Verse 10, For they indeed, that is to say, our earthly fathers, for they indeed, for a few days, chastened us as seemed best to them. But He, that is our Heavenly Father, for our profit, that we may be partakers of His holiness. You know, there's something profitable uh, from human correction. It's profitable on earth from our human fathers because it corrects us in, in our day-to-day lives. But from an eternal perspective, when our Heavenly Father corrects us, when He exercises discipline, it is of eternal benefit. It benefits us now because it says we partake in His holiness. We become more holy when God disciplines us and we recognize it and we change. We become more holy. Right now, you can incur that benefit from God's discipline. But so much more so than that. Later on, as we have now become holy from His discipline, later on when we are face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ and He looks upon us and we've been disciplined and we've come through that discipline in, in, in maturity, then the Lord Jesus Christ will look on us on that last day and say, well done, good and faithful servant. I've got a special measure of honor for you in the kingdom of God. There's great profit to this, friends. Partaking of holiness now, participating in the kingdom to come, will be more like Him and incur an eternal kind of profit when we accept His discipline. But it isn't easy. It isn't easy, friends. I'm not going to lie to you. Accepting discipline is not easy. Take a look at verse 11. He says, Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but it's painful. 
Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The Bible says it's hard. It's hard to be corrected. It's hard to be disciplined. It's painful for a child when he or she receives a spanking. And it's painful for an adult when they are rebuked. I might add, it's hard to correct. It's hard for the parent to discipline. It's hard for us to rebuke and discipline other people. I think one of the most difficult jobs of an elder in a church is when the time comes to confront another member and say, hey, I, you know, I think you need some correction here. As an elder, as a pastor, that is an extremely difficult thing to do. To walk up to somebody and say, you know what, I really think that you need to change in this particular way in your life. It's a very difficult thing to do. It's hard to correct people. But it pays. Take a look at the end of verse 11. It says, Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. It pays. It pays off. The fruit of righteousness is produced when you incur discipline. The fruit of righteousness is produced when you inflict discipline on your children. Do you want your son or daughter to be holy and righteous? Yes. Then discipline them. Be consistent. Be loving, but firm. Be affectionate, but steady. Don't discipline in anger or wrath. When your child does something wrong, first tell them what they've done wrong. Tell them that they're going to be disciplined. Follow through with that discipline. And then finally, remind them that you love them and you care for them and that you do this discipline so that they might become more mature, might become more like their Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, how can we apply what we've learned today? Application. First, I want to say very clearly, search the Scriptures to, in order to identify the way God disciplines people. We've got to open up the Bible and say, what, what are the ways in which God is presently disciplining us or might in the future discipline us? I have a feeling that would be a wonderful study for all of us to do. How does God discipline you? We've looked at a few here today. You can't learn from correction if you're unaware that you're receiving it. You can't learn from it if you don't know you're getting it. Two, accept God's discipline without disdain or dejection. He disciplines us for our benefit that we might become more holy, more righteous. And three, commit to lovingly and consistently disciplining your children, knowing that you are partnering with God to protect and enrich your child's physical and eternal life. Friends, that is so important. And I, um, I'm so pleased with so many of the families in this church. I see them raising their children in the Lord. I see them consistently disciplining them, yet in love. And friends, we've got to keep that up. We will save our children from a lifetime of hurt and sorrow if we discipline them consistently and lovingly. As we do baby dedications on July the 8th, one of the vows that I ask the parents to agree to is this. Do you commit to admonish and lovingly discipline your child that he or she may know what is acceptable and pleasing to the Lord? Friends, that's one of the things we ask our parents to agree to as they dedicate their children. And so as you watch that on July the 8th, be reminded of how important it is to discipline our children in the Lord and to receive God's discipline as He corrects us. Friends, don't despise discipline. 
Let us know what it looks like from our Lord and let us be ready and willing to change when He corrects us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh Lord, uh, discipline is, is not an easy topic. Uh, Father, it, it raises the flags of many. There are some uh, in our state, in our educational system, who are trying to tell us that, that uh, children should not be disciplined physically. And yet, Father, this, this, we recognize today this flies straight in the face of Your Word. Father, Your Word tells us that uh, physical discipline is a means by which we can correct our children. And it should be utilized in love, and not in wrath. And if it is done in love, Lord, that it can, be, it can be so effective. Father, I pray that You would guide the young families of this church as they raise their children. May they consistently discipline. May they be consistent. May they be loving in that discipline and not wrathful. May they remind their children that, that they do this because they love them and want them to become more like Jesus. And Father... Help us to identify when you're disciplining us. Lord, I think this is a, a subject that, we, that I neglect, that we neglect. Father, I know that there are times in which you're disciplining us and we are just not even aware of it. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to identify what your discipline looks like. And that we, like children who are disciplined, that we would turn and, be, and change our ways when we are disciplined by you. Father, it is our desire to become more like Jesus. We pray that you would discipline us so that we can become more holy and righteous. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.